The new enforcement mechanism is very significant and it's going to cause certain organizations to have to take a good hard look at their privacy management programs. The Digital Charter Implementation Act is an attempt to better protect Canadians and their privacy. It would create two distinct changes in privacy in Canada. One component would try to balance people's privacy with organizations' need to use data to provide useful services. The other would provide tools to impose penalties on those who violate the laws. We're lucky to have privacy expert Sean Brown here to help us make sense of the proposed changes. He guides us through the key components of the new act, talks about what's new, and shines a light on where problems may lie. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. It's not often that you get to claim that you wrote the book on a topic. But in the case of my guest this episode, that's a true statement. Sean Brown is a partner in Innovation LLP, a law firm that specializes in privacy and other regulatory matters. Sean has almost 20 years of experience in the privacy field, and his expertise is in arguably some of the most important topics as it relates to combining data-driven insights and individual privacy. He advises regularly on topics related to e-marketing, health privacy, information security, and other privacy-related matters. Sean is the co-author of a book whose abstract notes it includes everything lawyers and business professionals need to know about privacy. The book is called The Law of Privacy in Canada. I'm pleased to welcome Sean to the show to help us make sense of a new direction for privacy regulation in Canada that was introduced November 2020, the Digital Charter Implementation Act. Sean. Welcome to Bright Future. Thanks a lot for having me. I should point out the Law of Privacy is a fantastic resource. I think it's the best in Canada, but I wasn't one of the original authors. I was a later edition. Thanks for clarifying. Sean, to start off, can you provide a quick overview of some of the most important changes that would come if the Digital Charter Implementation Act comes into force? There are a lot of changes with the Digital Charter Implementation Act. It would create a new standalone privacy law called the Consumer Privacy Protection Act, or the CPPA, but we'll just call it the new law for simplicity. Right now, privacy at the federal level is governed by the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, or PIPIDA. The new law would take the privacy regulation piece out of PIPIDA and put it in a standalone law. Right now, it's currently bundled with provisions that are meant to deal with electronic documents and signatures and those types of things. It never really made a lot of sense. So this will create a standalone law. It's better, makes more sense. And also PIPIDA directly incorporates the CSA model code for the protection of privacy. So the 10 privacy principles, which is a model code that was developed largely by the private sector. And it's a really odd way of drafting a law where you actually incorporate the code as a schedule to the law, and then you build on that with the legislative provision. Just a really unusual way to draft a law. In terms of how it changes the form of the law, I think it makes a lot of significant improvements. The bulk of the legal requirements really remain the same around accountability and consent and limiting collection, use, and disclosure of personal information. It still applies to the handling of personal information by federally regulated organizations in the course of commercial activity. It also applies directly within the provinces that haven't passed their own substantially similar legislation. That won't change. That's the sort of federal provincial constitutional compromise. But there are a number of significant changes 
in terms of substance. And I think the most significant change you've probably heard the most about, and you will hear a lot about, is the fact that the OPC, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, which enforces the law, will now have the ability to impose orders on organizations. If an organization is deemed to be in contravention of the legislation, the Privacy Commissioner can order an organization to change their practices to stop engaging in a certain practice. There will be a new tribunal created to hear appeals from the Privacy Commissioner. So the Privacy Commissioner himself won't be able to impose penalties or order penalties, but the tribunal will be able to order penalties on recommendation from the Privacy Commissioner. So that's a really significant change. There are currently no penalties under PIPIDA. It also creates a private right of action would allow any person who can demonstrate that they've been harmed by a contravention of the legislation. If it has gone through the privacy commissioner process, they've conducted an investigation, they found that there's a contravention, and then it goes through the appeal process to the tribunal. If that's all exhausted, then you could essentially sue an organization and seek damages for any actual harm that you can prove. A few other changes, the introduction of data mobility frameworks. This is intended to require organizations to be able to give individuals access to their own data and take data from one provider to another. That's implemented in, a, I think, a fairly targeted and, and limited form. There is a provision that's intended to deal somewhat with the concept of algorithmic transparency. So if algorithms, technological processes are used to make decisions about individuals, there is a new right for individuals to request information about how that decision was made. And also, I think really helpfully, it clarifies some of the obligations around the use of third-party service providers. So I'd say those are really the biggest changes. What are the biggest gaps that you saw or organizations have experienced in privacy legislation in Canada that this is trying to solve for? I think you can answer that question two ways, and it, it depends on which lens you're looking through. The biggest criticism that we've seen of PIPIDA for several years from privacy advocates and people on that side of the spectrum is the lack of a strong enforcement mechanism. Where we've seen that in other laws around the world, we have the GDPR in the EU. We have the anti-spam legislation in Canada that has significant penalties and stronger enforcement. This closes that perceived gap for those who have criticized the law for lack of enforcement. From the business side, I would say it, it maybe closes a few smaller gaps. It potentially creates new exceptions to consent for business purposes. They're fairly limited and targeted, but they're quite reasonable and they'll be helpful in certain circumstances. The law clarifies some of the obligations around the use of service providers, whether located within Canada or in other jurisdictions, it clarifies that it is okay to use third-party service providers. It's very helpful in that respect, creates a few additional obligations. Do you see this as a evolution in Canada's privacy laws or a revolution? It's quite significant. The new enforcement mechanism is very significant and it's going to cause certain organizations to have to take a good hard look at their privacy management programs and how they're identifying and mitigating privacy-related risks because the risks are much more significant under a law with more significant enforcement. 
This new law places a lot of responsibilities and powers with the Privacy Commissioner. You've talked about this new enforcement responsibility. What are the changes to this new role that you think are going to have the greatest impact? Well, the introduction of order-making powers is quite significant. It fundamentally alters that kind of ombudsperson approach that has always driven the Privacy Commissioner's office up until well, up until now, or with the passage of the new legislation, it would really change that. Potentially makes the process more adversarial because the stakes are higher. The Privacy Commissioner isn't just making recommendations anymore. They're making orders. And then an organization has to decide whether to comply with the order or appeal that finding to the tribunal. It potentially means that there could be more occasions on which OPC findings are going to be reviewed. So the Privacy Commissioner publishes a lot of findings, the vast majority of them, they're never reviewed by the federal court. So it means that a lot of the guidance that we see under our current privacy legislation is put out there by the Privacy Commissioner, and we kind of have to follow it, but it's rarely reviewed by a court. So there are a lot of questions about how the Privacy Commissioner has interpreted things. And one example is increasingly over the years, Privacy commissioners have taken an increasingly broad approach to interpreting the concept of personal information. And I would like to see the tribunal and potentially even the courts on more occasions reviewing some of these decisions where the privacy commissioner is taking that really expanded approach to personal information. Another potential issue that could become more significant is the whole question of the constitutionality of federal privacy legislation. And there are still some lingering questions around the extent to which the federal government has authority under the constitution to implement this privacy legislation in the first place. It's very clear that the federal government can regulate federally regulated entities. So these are airlines, telecommunications companies, railways, banks, those types of entities. But it's still an open question as to whether PIPEDA, our current law, should apply within the provinces that don't have their own substantially similar legislation. If we see more appeals, if we see the Privacy Commissioner recommending penalties and the Tribunal imposing penalties, the incentives are going to be a lot higher for organizations to potentially apply for judicial review in the federal court and challenge the constitutionality of PIPEDA if it was deemed not to be constitutional, would significantly alter the scope of federal privacy legislation and leave a lot of provinces without any privacy legislation applying to the private sector. One other area that could be challenging for the commissioner is really how are they going to decide if they're recommending penalties, how big those penalties should be. There are a few factors that the privacy commissioner is supposed to take into account when recommending penalties, but it really is open-ended. And when you're looking at the quantum of penalties, it's effectively for a lot of organizations, it's almost unlimited when you're dealing with many millions of dollars. In one of the promotional videos for the new act, the Honorable Navdeep Baines says that privacy and the use of data-driven insights can be complementary, not competing priorities. He goes on to say that digital and data principles in Canada will lay down the foundation that will allow us to build an innovative, people-centered, and inclusive digital and data economy built on trust. Then he says, it's that simple. In talking with privacy leaders, 
but it's not often simple to balance those two elements. What's your take on how effective this will be at protecting privacy in Canada, but also enabling companies and individuals to make the most out of data-driven insights? That's a really, I guess, nice sounding collection of buzzwords. And those are the types of things that ministers have to say. We're balancing these different interests. It's definitely more complex in practice. I don't think it's quite that simple. Maybe it's simple to say this is what we're trying to achieve. They've made an effort to really balance those two interests, which in a lot of cases, they do end up being competing interests. Maybe they can be complementary at, at times, but in practice, we're often balancing competing objectives. One of the things that the government did was they introduced this new concept of de-identification in the legislation. It's a subset of personal information. They created a definition for the concept of de-identifying information. So it says you can use technical processes to de-identify information so a person can't be identified. Also, it wouldn't be reasonably foreseeable that someone could be identified using that information or other information. And in concept, that's potentially really helpful and it makes a lot of sense. What they're saying is organizations can de-identify information and use that to develop these data-driven insights. They can use it internally. They can also disclose it to other organizations in certain circumstances, for example, to government institutions where it's for a socially beneficial purpose. It makes a lot of sense in concept, though the way that they've tried to accomplish this is really flawed. The definition of de-identification within the law is essentially the reverse of the definition of personal information. And by that, I mean that if you would de-identify according to the standard in this new law, it shouldn't be personal information at all, according to the definition of personal information. So they set the threshold far too high. It makes the whole concept pointless to include it in the law. And it also raises questions about really what is the definition of personal information, which is already extremely broad. It potentially expands the definition of personal information, which in turn expands the scope of the law which would make life really, really difficult for organizations. That's something that definitely has to be fixed. But I do like, at least appreciate what they're trying to do, acknowledging the fact that we need to be able to use data internally within organizations to develop these insights, even if we don't or aren't able to approach the threshold of pure anonymization, which is a really difficult thing to achieve. It also raises this question that you talk about on who's analyzing and how are we making the decisions based on these data-driven insights. We've had futurists on the program, Sinead Bovell, for example, who talked about the way in which algorithms can encode bias and can generate some results that people might not have wanted because of the way in which the algorithms are built, and then it's the algorithms that are analyzing and making the decisions as it relates to the information. For many Canadians, we've watched a lot of shows on streaming services this year, and one of them was The Social Dilemma, which really highlights how algorithms are driving decisions that are being made on our behalf. How is this new law going to address some of the ways in which it's not humans that are analyzing this information, it's the computers and it's the algorithms 
that are encoded with potentially some biases in them. How do you protect and manage de-identified information in that context? There's some real policy issues there. The social dilemma. I had so many people come up to me recently and talk about that documentary that I finally had to go and watch it. And I think it was a real eye-opener for a lot of people. For those of us who have been in the privacy field for a long time, there's nothing really surprising there. But I think a lot of people have just kind of been using these technologies, social media and recommendation engines and all these services that we consume without really any thought to what it actually means. I think it's terrifying to a lot of people. And also the question about racial and other type of biases that can be built in have been concerns that have been discussed around the use of machine learning and AI for a long time now. And they are very real issues related to discrimination and human rights. In terms of how these issues are addressed through privacy legislation, I think we have to be really cautious and understand that there's not a lot that we can achieve through privacy legislation to deal with these important privacy issues. Privacy legislation can create some rules around the extent to which maybe I want my information to be able to feed the machine that creates these predictive analytics and algorithms. That's probably not going to make much difference in the big picture. Maybe I also have the right, in some cases, to opt out of having those algorithms used on me as an individual, although it's arguable that in a lot of services like Facebook and other social media platforms, that really is the core of what you're using when you use the platform. I don't think that we can really seek to address these really big policy questions, some of which make us ponder some real existential questions about what it means to be human and whether there really is free choice in anything that we do. Privacy legislation has a really limited role to play in that. The way that they have drafted this new law reflects that fact. There's that link, right? Because it's the information that's being provided that feeds the machine. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely a link between privacy and some of these broader issues. I'm kind of of the school of thought that privacy is instrumental in supporting these bigger, more important values, rather seeing privacy as an end in and of itself. But these bigger issues aren't really privacy issues. When the government talks about data-driven insights and supporting the creation of these technologies, and obviously they want more of these technologies being developed in Canada, and they need to be able to use data to do that, they want to facilitate that. If you're trying to achieve that policy objective, you can't make it too difficult for organizations to use very large amounts of data. The threshold has to be fairly low. When you look at the concept of de-identification, they've tried to create that balance and allow organizations to use that information in a de-identified state without individual consent. That's the objective there. So they could create a higher threshold and they could say, well, you need everyone's consent if you want to process their data to create these insights. But then you're effectively making it impossible for organizations to do that. Many of these platforms are not housed in Canada. Much of the information is in cloud services or U.S. or offshore sites. What's the potential implication of this new law on those pieces? And what's the balance that has to get struck for Canadians? Because a good chunk of this information is going outside of the country. The government has explicitly acknowledged 
that we need to be able to allow data to flow across borders. This is reflected explicitly in a few of the sections that we see in the new law. We had this issue a couple of years ago where the privacy commissioner decided in the context of an investigation involving the big data breach with Equifax that he thought in that context, Equifax should have had consent in order to transfer personal information out of Canada to Equifax US. Understandably, that created a lot of concern because if all of a sudden we need to have consent to transfer personal information outside of Canada, that would be a huge barrier to business. It's just not feasible. There was some room for interpretation in our current law, but in the new law, the government has said, you don't need consent to transfer personal information outside of Canada. They've made that really clear and they recognize that that's just a necessary aspect of doing business. There have definitely been concerns raised by various stakeholders over the years. A lot of this really goes back to when the U.S. passed their Patriot Act, which would allow the FBI and other organizations to potentially gather large amounts of data from private businesses. There were concerns that the U.S. government was just going to start hoovering up all of these databases, which could include information about Canadians. Now, there isn't a lot of transparency around how those processes work in the U.S., but there's really been no evidence over the last almost 20 years that this has been much of a problem, if at all, for the privacy of Canadians. Not really borne out, I don't think that my privacy is any less protected if I'm dealing with a U.S. service provider versus a company that's entirely located within Canada. There's no disadvantage from this new law. No, if anything, they made it more clear that you can transfer personal information across borders. It is this tension around the use of the data. Is privacy an important tool in creating trust as it relates to the way that information is being used, the information that you're being presented? It's a big challenge, certainly for information-driven organizations where there needs to be some level of trust and independence on that information. And it's increasingly difficult to generate that trust. I would agree. We're in a time right now, and especially when you look at you know, all the misinformation around COVID and the use of vaccinations, it's like people are living in entirely different realities. These are issues that kind of affect us as a group or as a population, as opposed to on an individual level. They obviously affect us as individuals, but when you're looking at it from a policy perspective, I think it is more on a group level and the way that we are potentially profiled and manipulated as a population. Privacy legislation is really more providing me with rights on an individual level. So I think it, again, is of, of kind of limited use in trying to deal with some of those bigger population group level policy issues. Do you think it's the wrong tool to address trust? It can have a role, certainly, in trust around how organizations are collecting and using our personal information. There's no question about that. But when you're getting into these bigger issues around the way that we're potentially manipulated by social media and how that's affecting us as a population, you're really getting outside the bounds of what privacy legislation can accomplish. You have to be really careful about expanding and introducing these new policy issues into privacy legislation. We have seen 
arguably a huge change in our approach to privacy. Our first guest for the whole series was Stefan Hamel and talked about contact tracing and how privacy and data privacy needed to be incorporated into that. Since that first episode, we have seen the government introduce a contact tracing app in Canada. The privacy commissioners from across the country were able to support that contact tracing app. The experience of that app and the approval of that app, what lessons do you think privacy experts should be taking from our experience in contact tracing during COVID-19? It's been interesting to see the use of contact tracing apps, or maybe more accurately referred to as the exposure notification applications that we've seen rolled out in Canada and other jurisdictions. I have quite a bit of insight into how that application works, and it's based on the Apple-Google exposure notification layer within their operating system. There are a few lessons to be learned from this. I think that they went so far to protect privacy with these apps that they potentially undermined the actual utility of it. They don't collect any personal information. There is no threat to privacy whatsoever from the application that was rolled out by the federal government that's being used in various provinces. It doesn't collect, use, disclose personal information. It doesn't collect location data. It's all done as anonymously as you possibly can. But I still come across a lot of people who are skeptical of it. They don't trust it. They don't want to use it. I do wonder if you can go too far, in some cases, really focusing on privacy, undermining the effectiveness of the application itself. And still, a lot of people don't want to use it because they think it's a threat to their privacy. There's a sense that I'd like it to protect my privacy. Somebody else's privacy is less important if you can disaggregate it. So there's the the individual tension of, sure, I'll participate in this as long as it's giving me the really concrete, detailed information that allows me to sort of act on it. But then in order to protect that privacy, it reduces the usefulness. Yeah. And I wonder really when people don't use the app because they say they're concerned about privacy, if they really are concerned about privacy, or if they felt that it offered a better value proposition, they would use it. And that's really, I think your point is that's really potentially what's going on there. And those were a lot of the early discussions when different jurisdictions were talking about rolling out apps, what sort of information should we gather? And should we try to gather some location information and and identify some of these hotspots? So we stay away from those areas if we think there's potentially an outbreak or a lot of cases floating around there. If they want the population to use mobile apps like this, maybe during the next time we have a pandemic that rolls around, they need to offer more value. In addition to obviously protecting user privacy, but maybe don't focus so much on privacy at the cost of usefulness. The new act and this new law is trying to establish this sense of It doesn't always have to be a trade-off because they're trying to navigate these two tensions. You've talked already a little bit about some of the areas that you think business leaders should be paying attention to as this act moves closer towards becoming law. What are the ones that you would recommend? Well, one is just paying attention to the status of the legislation. As it moves closer to becoming law, well, we have a minority government, which could essentially fall at any time. If we had an election in the spring or the summer, which resulted in different formation of government, so if we had a 
minority conservative government. This is essentially going to go in the garbage bin, at least for a while. There's that balance there of how much time and energy you want to invest into preparing for the law based on the probability that it's actually going to become a reality. The flip side of that is this could theoretically wind its way through the legislative process before summer. I understand that the government is going to give a certain amount of time before it actually comes into effect, whether it's 12 months or a year and a half. So if it receives royal assent, it's not going to be law on day one. So that would definitely give organizations some time to prepare. But in terms of how to prepare or what to think about for a lot of organizations, it's just making sure that you have the capacity and the resources so that you can be confident that privacy risks are being effectively identified and mitigated to acceptable levels throughout the organization. This includes having an appropriate governance structure in place right from the very top of the organization all the way down that encourages buy-in throughout the organization, making sure that the appropriate decision makers are tapped in so they can allocate resources to deal with privacy-related issues, ensuring that you have appropriate policies and procedures in place. And also, we want to make sure that we're able to prevent contraventions from occurring in the first place. But if a contravention does occur, and in bigger organizations, privacy issues are going to happen. It's unavoidable. But we want to be able to demonstrate due diligence, because that's a defense that you can offer before the tribunal. I think that's really the most important thing, is making sure that you have the resources to manage privacy throughout the organization. Sean, whether we're comfortable with the amount of data that we're sharing knowingly or accidentally, or the potential risks of its misuse, I think in general, we can agree that this goal of stronger data-driven insights that are helping us to make better decisions as individuals and as a society is enticing and something that is important to us as a country. What makes you optimistic that the approach that Canada is taking, whether through this law or generally, is going to be able to position us to be successful in the future? For the most part, the government has done a good job of listening to different perspectives and really trying to obtain that elusive balance in the privacy legislation. The introduction of penalties in order-making powers is going to make life more challenging for some organizations. There's the potential for penalties that are in multiple millions of dollars. So that obviously is concerning. But there are specific examples throughout the new law where the government has really taken into account some of the concerns of business. For example, the ability to use service providers located in Canada and outside of Canada. They have brought in this concept of data mobility, but it's in a very limited way. Not every organization that's subject to the act is going to be required to provide for data mobility or data portability for every individual. It's only organizations that will be subject to data mobility frameworks that are established through regulation. And this is really about facilitating open banking, I think. We're not going to see this apply across the board. There is a provision that deals with this notion of algorithmic transparency, but it's fairly limited in focus. So focus on providing individuals with the right to understand what decision was made, how the decision was made, and what information was used to facilitate that decision. At least from my reading, it doesn't require organizations to completely open up and explain all of their algorithm. There's a lot of balancing 
that's done in the legislation. That's probably what would make me most optimistic about it is the fact that the government appears to have tried to really take into account the views of all the different stakeholders in the conversation. I'm sure when you started, privacy didn't seem as sexy as it is now, but it is such an important topic for everyone. It's really been a pleasure talking to you about this. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. You've been listening to Bright Future from the Conference Board of Canada. If you like what you hear on this series, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. Our production team includes Andy Joy, who's our writer, and Sarah Mouse, who supports in audio editing. Ideas were contributed by Michael Jones, Rob Collins, and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion or research. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, research, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.